Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be received and applied as you intend. May the sprinkling of the blood come upon my tongue, my heart, my mind, that I might be your transparent instrument to convey everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. I pray that I will be clear, simple, that this will be life-changing, and that this will bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Assurance of salvation is one of the sweetest and most relieving feelings in the whole world, knowing you will go to heaven when you die. Question, do you have this assurance? I hope that you will apply this word to yourself and not to the person next to you. Because one day you will stand before God and you won't have anybody around you to uphold you. And it'll be you before him. And he, if he were to ask you the question, why should I let you into my heaven? And you'd have nobody to whisper the answer. But you had to answer for yourself, what would you say? Now there's no substitute for this assurance. I never will forget it as long as I live. There was a day when I came to, I'm going to use a Greek word that I hope that by the time you finish, uh, this will not be strange or hard for you to understand. I was given pleroforia assurance. It's a Greek word that means full assurance. Never forget it as long as I live. And I knew that day that I would go to heaven and not to hell when I die. Now, I was brought up in the hills of Kentucky in the days when it was assumed there's a heaven and there's a hell. I honestly wonder how many Christians today really believe this, that there's one of two destinies. There's not a third. When you die, you will either go to heaven or to hell. And I was brought up on this, and I feared going to hell. The problem was in those days, sadly, I was given the impression that you need to be ready, and the only way you can be ready is that your life meets a certain approval. And if you come to a certain standard, you would enter into heaven. And the problem was I never felt that I came up to that standard. But a day came when I was given this pleroforia, full assurance, and I knew I was saved. And all day long I could only think, I'm not going to go to hell. I'm not going to go to hell, and I want you to know I've never got over that. Now, there are basically two levels of assurance. Uh, the first level 
is what I would call that which is cerebral or intellectual. When you, by reason, conclude that you are saved, uh, the Puritans called it the practical syllogism. It was Aristotelian reasoning. A major premise followed by a minor premise that leads to a conclusion. Take John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him, he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you could say, I believe in him, therefore I will not perish. So the major premise is all who believe in Christ will be saved. But you respond, but I believe in Christ. Conclusion, therefore you are saved. There's nothing wrong with this. This is a basic way of coming to assurance, and I think most people come into assurance that way. Uh, for years, I have given the gospel to people on a one-to-one -one basis. I would say I've spoken to thousands, not from the pulpit, but individually, whether in a barber shop or on an airplane or on a bus or a train, whoever I talk to. And then after I would present the gospel, I would quote John 6, 47. Whoever believes in him, in Jesus, will have eternal life. And so after I present the gospel, I would say to the person, who have you just believed in? They would say, Jesus. What did he promise you if you believed in him? Eternal life. If that is true and you died today, where would you go? To heaven. Well, that's called syllogistic reasoning. Nothing wrong with that. But there is a second level of assurance. And this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. Full assurance, pleroforia. This Greek word is used, uh, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul said he knew their election because the gospel came in full assurance. It's in Hebrews 6, it's in Hebrews 10, and in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, the word is full assurance, pleroforia, of understanding. Full assurance of understanding. What's that? That means that you know you've got it right in your thinking, in your doctrine, in your theology. It is just clear to you. Only the Holy Spirit can give it where you know that what you believe is true. Now, that is what was going on in those who heard Peter preaching. It was what Peter himself was, ex was experiencing as he preached. It is what happened to the 120, because the first time they had pleroforia, full assurance of understanding. They knew why God sent his son into the world. They didn't know till then. They'd heard it taught, but it just never sank in. They knew why Jesus died on the cross. They didn't know until then. They knew why he was raised from the dead. They didn't know till then. But when the Spirit came down, they had this full assurance of understanding. Now, 
there have been various levels of assurance over the years. As I said, the Puritans made it basically an intellectual thing. You reason. Possibly the first in modern times to take the view that you get this assurance by the Holy Spirit even at conversion was in the early Methodism. You may not have realized this, but the early Methodists taught uh, that when you are converted, you have a witness of the Spirit. And uh, this was possibly unprecedented for hundreds of years. Puritans saw it as reasoning. The early Methodists, they felt the witness of the Spirit that they were saved. Now, this gave rise to people saying, well, I know the day, I know the place, I know the hour when I was saved. I find in my pastoral experience that about half Christians, half of the Christians can say, I know when I was saved. I can tell you where I was, the moment. What's this going to make the rest of the Christians feel? Well, they say, well, I'm not sure I know the day or the hour. And those who have had this immediate witness sometimes can be impatient and say, well, you need to know the day or the hour. The poor Christian responds, well, I'm not sure I do know the day or the hour. So what are we to say for people who don't know the day or the hour? Well, the first is those who think they know the day and the hour, they really have not got it right they don't know for sure that that's when they were saved. They only know that's when they came into assurance that they were saved. The work of regeneration had gone on before then, but they know the moment they had assurance. What about those who say, but I can't tell you a particular time when I came into this? Augustus Toplady, the great hymn writer. You perhaps know the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Augustus Toplady addressed this question, and here's the way he put it. You may know the sun is up, although you were not awake the moment it arose. And so for those who can't tell you the day or the hour, they can say, I know one thing. It's real to me now. I believe now. Well, that's the big thing. Those things said, this pleroforia, Full assurance happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, perhaps it's too much to hope that as I preach today, we might have a touch of this. This is what I've prayed for. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another for somebody out there, even listening to me now, you say, I now know exactly what it is. It's just happened to me. That would be a wonderful thing to take place. This level of full assurance. Now, there are several things that I want to talk about that come from the text that Bruce just read. The first is full assurance and preaching. Full assurance and preaching. This refers to me as I preach, and it was what was going on with Peter as he preached that as he spoke, he knew as he spoke, the words were given to him. Now, a very interesting little study here. I hope I don't get too technical because I want you to get this. If I can get this over, uh, 
you'll see what I mean. It's a very interesting study. Did you know that the Greek word translated utterance in many translations in Acts 2.4 is the same word used in Acts 2.14 where it simply is translated addressed or said. Let me explain what I mean. Acts 2.4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues the NIV says, as the Spirit enabled them. The ESV, authorized version says, as they were given utterance. What that means is, speaking in unknown tongues, other languages, whatever word you want to use, they were enabled to do by the Spirit. They couldn't do that in their own strength. They didn't have that power. They didn't have that knowledge. They wouldn't know how. But they were given an ability. It was called utterance. The interesting thing is that Luke, who wrote Acts, when he describes Peter, uses the very same word. But no modern translation brings this out. They will translate it, Peter said, or Peter addressed the crowd. If they wanted to do justice to that Greek word, they would translate Acts 2.14 like this. Peter raised his voice and with utterance spoke to the crowd. The point is that Peter, speaking in his own language, which is probably Aramaic, when he spoke, he was given the same power in his own language as of the 120 had to speak in other languages. Now, that wouldn't come out in most translations, but that's what's behind this. In other words, Peter now is speaking at a very high level of assurance, full assurance as he spoke. Uh, he spoke with utterance. The apostle Paul asked for people to pray for him that he might be given utterance. This means a particular ability. You can't work it up. You can't make it happen. It's what enables you to speak. So it was the Holy Spirit who enabled Peter to preach with such assurance and boldness. Uh, I can tell you right now, this level of assurance is every preacher's dream. I wish I could say to you that it happens to me every time I preach. If I'm totally honest, and this may surprise you, it may shock you, if I'm totally honest, I think twice in my life, twice, and I've been preaching 60 years, I've had a touch of this. When I was just given utterance, wanted it all my life. I'd do anything in the world for it. I'd walk around the world for it. But you can't make it happen. But it was given to Peter. Now, it's called anointing. Or the old-fashioned word out of the King James Version, unction. A very high level. Now, when Peter preached that day, he did not have notes as I do here. Uh, what I have here, this is plan B. 
If all else fails, I look at my notes. I would far rather be given utterance and never once look at my notes. Now, there are those places in the world, you actually have it back in the hills of Kentucky, you did at one time, that it's not spiritual to use notes. That you should just stand up and preach and God will give you the word. And I think I'm right that the fallout of the Cane Ridge Revival, 1802, uh, they preached without notes. And for a good while, people just didn't need notes. But then as the Holy Spirit would diminish, you had to make a choice. Do you use notes or do you trust the Holy Spirit? I thought of a story. I promise you I hadn't thought of this for 40 years till today. A story that comes out of the hills of Kentucky. I don't know if it's apocryphal or if it really happened. I was told that it really happened. But this young preacher refused to use notes. And he said, I'm just going to stand up and let God fill my mouth. And so he stood up and he started out. I am coming to you. Nothing came. But, oh dear. He stepped back. I am coming to you. Nothing came. He's just not going to be deterred, and he said, I'm just going to have a better run for it. He stands back and he says, and I'm coming to you, and he fell over the pulpit, <laughs> landed on a lady's lap <laughs> on the front row, and he was so ashamed, and he said to the lady, I'm sister, I'm so sorry, I am so sorry. She said, look, I don't blame you, I blame myself, you warned me three times. <laughs> You might like to know that story is not in my notes. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that what I said was inspired. I just said it. But I can tell you this. Uh, there's no substitute for the anointing, and yet most of us who've been preaching for years know to have plan B. If we're not given something, we at least will have something to say. Now, as I said, this level of assurance is every preacher's dream. And the result, were it to happen, certainly happened on the day of Pentecost, is subjective and objective. Let me explain. Subjective to the preacher. It means he speaks with utter fearlessness and freedom. When I say fearlessness, I don't mean that he has courage because courage is something that you are determined to show even though you're afraid. And that's good. But there's a level higher than that. 
It's not courage. It is literally fearlessness. You're just not afraid. You're not afraid of anybody. You're just at home. And that was Peter that day. That was Peter that day. It would not have mattered who was there. Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, chief priest, high priest, Pontius Pilate, Herod, wouldn't have bothered him. And the amazing thing is that this is the same Peter who seven weeks before was so afraid that when a Galilean servant girl said to Peter, you were one of those disciples? And Peter said, I was not. Let me share something with you. You may have thought of this. You may not have. You're aware, aren't you, that in the original Greek, there were no chapters and verses. Did you know that? They just just kept going. Chapters and verses were put there uh, some 400 years ago to help us find our place. But when you remember that in the original, there were no chapters and verses, remember this story? Jesus says to Peter, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. That's the end of chapter 13. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. So most most of us start out with chapter 14. We forget Jesus was talking to Peter and the disciples. So read it again. Will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? I tell you the truth. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do not let your heart be troubled. Imagine that. Jesus knowing that Peter would deny him and in the same breath said, it's okay, don't be troubled. My word, what kind of love is this? Most of us would say, oh, Peter, I know what you're going to do. You're going to deny me, and, and I hope you feel bad about it. No, you look at the original, no chapters and verses. You're going to deny me. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. How do you explain when Peter actually denied knowing Jesus to a servant girl? You would have thought that would Block his chances for ever being used of God again, much less preach the inaugural sermon of the church. Here he was chosen on the day of Pentecost. This same man, this same man, perhaps there's someone here. You denied the Lord. You had opportunity to witness. You didn't want anybody to know. You were ashamed. You were a coward. You think, God can never use me now. I have a word for you today. You've denied the Lord. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. He's a forgiving God. Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you. And the least likely person to preach the sermon on the day of Pentecost was Peter. And he had this pleroforia, 
full assurance. And the reason he had it is because he was given it, and God chose him. God can use you, and you may have messed up, but on this Pentecost Sunday, he comes to you and says, don't worry, I'm on your case. You're loved with an everlasting love. And Peter, when he heard the crowing of the rooster, looked at Jesus. Jesus looked at him, their eyes locked. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was so ashamed. But now, here he is preaching on the day of Pentecost with this high level of assurance, subjectively, and he wasn't even afraid. Objectively, what is that? Well, that is what happens to the people. If I'm given this subjective assurance, I will be fearless, and objectively to you, something will happen. And that is, you are smitten. You are shaken rigid. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Psalm 110. Charles Spurgeon used that verse to show the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. And so objectively, these people that people are addressing, do you know what they were saying a couple hours before? They were laughing at the 120 Spirit of God comes on them. They're speaking in other languages. When you get to heaven, I predict this, I can't prove it, but I believe it. When you get to heaven and you get to see a DVD replay of the whole event, you're going to find that the reason people scoffed and said they've got a hold of new wine it's not because they spoke in tongues. That would be enough to cause people to say they got new wine. In fact, that's what caused them to stand in awe because they heard everything in their own language. It was a, a miracle. No, it was more going on. There were people laughing their heads off with joy. There were some on the floor, some rolling in the aisles. They were so full of joy, they didn't care who saw them, what they thought. And so people laughed. They got a hold of new wine. Now, Peter preaches. We don't know how long the sermon lasted, certainly longer than it took to read this passage. You can read it in five or six minutes. I would have thought Peter went for an hour, maybe two hours. But by the time he finishes, they're not laughing. They're saying, what do we do? objectively, when the Spirit of God falls on the people. Well, now, that's the first point today. Holy Spirit assurance and preaching. But there's a second point, and that is the Holy Spirit and prophecy. Prophecy. Here's the way it started. When people were laughing, Peter just stood up and raised his voice and was given utterance to speak. And from this point on, he speaks with fearlessness. And he starts out by saying, look, what is happening is the fulfillment of a prophecy. And it goes back to the book of Joel. 
And so he says, uh, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. You could translate that to the 21st century. He could be saying, the pubs aren't even open. So they're not drunk. But this is what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on to say more, quoting from Joel. Now, here is the boldness of Peter. He's saying, that prophecy in Joel, you want to know when it's going to be fulfilled? Peter's saying, it is right now. This is it. This is it. How could he say that? Ah, this high level of assurance. He knew what he was saying. This is it. You see, the real offense comes when you've got the boldness to say, what is happening right now? This is it. Talked about in the scripture? This is it. Take, for example, when Peter uh, came to the uh, synagogue, sorry, when Jesus came to the synagogue in Acts, uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And he went to Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Notice, he stands up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and here is a significant word that you might not have noticed. It just says, Jesus sat down, possibly in the chair of the rabbi. Are you aware that in ancient times, the position of authority was to sit when you spoke, not to stand like I'm doing now. If I were to speak with rabbinic authority, I would sit. Because they taught, Jesus sat in the boat and taught, he sat. On the Sermon on the Mount, seeing the multitudes, they came to him and when he was set, he sat down. Sitting was the place of authority. Pontius Pilate, before he sentenced Jesus, he dialogued with the people and then sat down and ordered the crucifixion because a judge sits. All right, Jesus stands reading the scripture and then he sat down. And it says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him as if to think, what is he doing? He's sitting here. And Jesus then said, this day, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That is what offended everybody. If Jesus had said, this day is coming down the road, no problem. Going to happen in a year or two, no problem. Going to happen very soon, no problem. But Jesus is saying, this is it. I'm the one. That is what offended. 
But one can only say that with plerophoria assurance. Because when the Spirit is present with that kind of power, you know you have not erred. You may recall that last year when I was here, nearly every one of my talks, I referred to the midnight cry. When the church is awakened, in the middle of the night, metaphorically speaking, not expecting anything. I haven't said much about it this year, but for your information, I think about it every day because it's coming. And when it comes, authority will be given to say, this is it. It's one thing to say, it's coming. That's what I've been saying, it's coming. But when it happens, authority will be given, plerophoria, to say, this is it. And that's what happened. First, full assurance and preaching, full assurance and prophecy. There's a third thing here. Assurance of the Spirit, full assurance, and predestination. What do you think of when you come up with the word predestination? Are you afraid of it? Oh, don't talk about that. Do you not realize, not only is it a biblical word, and the more you study it, the more you see it everywhere, but it's a word you should embrace, not be ashamed of. Take it with both hands, because it's the reason you are saved. God saw you from the beginning. And you realize your conversion is no accident. Well, what do we have here when Peter is preaching? This. He could report on the day of Pentecost that what happened on Good Friday when Jesus was nailed to the cross was utterly, totally, purposefully and irrevocably predestined. That's what happened on Good Friday. In fact, here's the way he puts it, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Now listen carefully. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. God was at the bottom of it all. Unless you think that's an unguarded comment in Acts chapter 4, when the disciples are praying, and as they pray, they say, Lord, Herod, and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and people of Israel to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Why is this important? Oh, we're talking about plerophoria of understanding. It's when everything clicked. Everything fell into place. Let me tell you something. 
those who saw Jesus raised from the dead still did not know why he died. Even after they saw him raised from the dead, they still expected that Jesus was going to overthrow Rome. What they didn't realize is that on that Good Friday, the crucifixion of Jesus was God bringing about the salvation of his people. It was predestined. Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident. See, until then, people didn't know what to believe. Surely something's gone wrong. Do you realize just a couple weeks before Jesus died on the cross, he raised Lazarus from the dead? Human logic would say anybody that can raise Lazarus from the dead can stop them from crucifying him by sheer power. They knew of all the miracles. They knew that Jesus walked on water. And now, here he is on a cross. And you know, they were saying, hey, son of God, come down from the cross. And I think there were some thinking, you know what? You wait. He's going to come down. He will. He's not going to die. The person who could raise Lazarus from the dead, walk on water, he's not going to die. But then, when darkness covered the earth, which was the Shekinah glory coming down to put the seal of God on the blood of Jesus being shed, and then Jesus cried out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on? Dear friends, that was the moment when all of our sins were transferred from us to Jesus. And remember these words. God punished Jesus. He said, well, that's not fair. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He doesn't deserve punishment. He was without sin. How could God punish Jesus? Do you know why? Because in that moment, sometime between 12 o'clock noon and 3 o'clock on Good Friday, your sins were put on Jesus, and God punished Jesus for your sins. And then multiply this by several hundred people in this room. Your sins are put on Jesus. Multiply that by millions throughout the world. Billions throughout the world. All of them put on Jesus. And so instead of punishing you, God punished Jesus. You know, it's a theological question. It's a, it's a political question in some places. Who crucified Jesus? Do you know? Well, I, I guess you know that it's politically incorrect to say the Jews did it. So you don't want to say that. But wait a minute. I seem to recall that they said, we'll take Barabbas, crucify him. What has he done, says Pilate? 
We want Barabbas to be freed. Crucify him. What evil has he done? And then they said, His blood be upon us and our children. The Jews said that. Now, you're not supposed to say that. That's exactly what happened. But then you can make a case. It wasn't the Jews. Surely it was Herod. You can make a case Herod did it. Oh, you could make a case Pontius Pilate did it. He's the one that says, take ye him and crucify him. Or have you thought about this? You can make a very good case that the devil did it. We know that Satan entered Judas Iscariot. So a demon-possessed Judas now betrays Jesus. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood the crucifixion, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see, the devil thought he was the architect of the crucifixion. So who crucified Jesus? Was it the Jews? Was it Pontius Pilate? Was it the devil? Or I could make a good case. It was you and I who did it. Our sins put him on the cross. In the words of that great hymn of Isaac Watts, was it for crimes that I have done? He groaned upon the tree. We did it. But at the end of the day, who do you suppose takes the responsibility? The buck stops with him. God says, I did it. Isaiah 53, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all so that all of our sins were transferred to Jesus and God punished Jesus for our sins. This is how I know I'm going to go to heaven. Well, now, this word predestination, it's a word you should be at home with. It's because God knows the end from the beginning. That, and this should make you so comfortable. This is what enables we to, us to sleep like a baby at night. We know that we're in his hands. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved. Through faith, not of yourselves. You thought it was you. You thought you had to come up to a particular standard. Stop it. Or James chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will begat he in us the word of the truth. The reason you're saved, because the work of the Holy Spirit just opened your eyes. And what is sad is sometimes the person next to you, doesn't happen to them, doesn't happen to them. And you ask the question, why me? Why is it that I see this? Well, it's painful when not all of your saved friends, uh, not all of your friends come to salvation. You pray for that, and they might be saved tomorrow. But in the meantime, if you wait for everybody to get what you've got, you've got to show your gratitude to God 
even if you're by yourself, and say, thank God, he chose me. And I'll never forget the day I found out I was going to go to heaven. I saw that it was by the sheer grace of God, not according to my works, but according to his own purpose and will. And so this assurance of predestination is what makes me see how big God is. Don't be afraid of that word. And so Peter could say, all that is happening, all that is happening, God did it. Good Friday. And then we know that 3,000 people were converted. You want to know what was at the bottom of that? It says at the end of Acts chapter 2, the Lord added to the church. Those who were being saved, the Lord did it. You see, we can't make people saved. God does it. And so the reason you're a Christian, God did it. Holy Spirit did it. And you say, well, why me? I don't think we'll ever know. I suspect when we get to heaven throughout eternity, we will still be saying, Lord, why did you love me so? Just thank him. Well, when Peter finished, nobody's scoffing now. Nobody's laughing. They come to him, and they come begging, and they say, what shall we do? It's called effectual calling. Sovereign power. Take Saul of Tarsus. He held the coats of Stephen, uh, or he held the coats of those who were persecuting Stephen, rather. That's a Hebraic euphemism that said, Saul of Tarsus was engineering what happened to Stephen when they were stoning him. And you would not have had a clue that God was at work in Saul right then. You would have said, he's arch enemy number one. But on the road to Damascus, he was struck down. And before you know it, Saul of Tarsus is saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then God says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it, Saul? It's not easy, is it? And there may be someone here, God's on your case. And you're saying, I'll get right one day. When finally, you realize God's on your case, and you better listen to him and not wait for everything to go so well or have all of your friends join you. But if you alone, out of your family, out of your dormitory, out of your apartment block, out of your office, out of your whole family, if you alone are the one, you don't wait for others to say, will you join me? You say, Lord, thank you for your patience with me. And you say, what? Do you want me to do? What would you say to God if he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? 
Think about it for a moment. I'm nearly finished. Plan B, by the way, I've got two more points. Not going to give them to you. You'll survive. Imagine you're standing before God. Nobody going to whisper in your ear the answer to the question. And God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? And there's only one answer, and you've got to give it right then. What would your answer be right now? Be honest. What would you say? Would you say, well, I've been baptized. I'm sorry, that won't, won't do it. Uh, I've tried to live a good life. I'm sorry, that won't cut it. Well, I've done my very best. It may surprise you. That won't do it. Who say, what more can you do? Well, I can tell you, there's nothing more you can do. But it's when you climb down, swallow your pride, and admit it's not what you can do. But you transfer the trust that you had in your good works to what Jesus did for you on the cross. And there's only one answer to the question. And if you didn't think of this answer on your own, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything, but the answer is because Jesus died for me. That's the answer. If that didn't come to your mind, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world, but we can sort that out right now, right now. I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. I want you to repeat it if you can say it and mean it. You don't need to say it out loud. Don't even need to close your eyes. But if in your heart you can repeat this prayer because God's watching and he's listening. He knows your thoughts. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it. Is it possible that someone here prayed that prayer? Is it possible that there's only one who prayed that prayer? And what if it's you? Are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? Why do you ask, R.T.? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. If you, if you prayed that prayer a minute ago, in about 20 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to make a speech, but by standing, you'll be confessing him. You're unashamed that you prayed that prayer. You say, in front of all these people, yep. And you might be the only one. Don't wait and see if someone else stands. Get the victory. But just say, God, thank you for this calling. Five, four, three, two, one. If you prayed that prayer, I want you right now, stand to your feet. There's one there. One there. 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 